a week before Easter. This would have been the day so many uh, thousands of years ago that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and began his final week of teaching. And I think Jesus would have been very excited if he would have had somebody yelling amen as enthusiastically as Cliff's grandson. Now, why did you take him away right before I started preaching? Okay, so all of the rest of you got to fill in for him. Amen? Amen. Amen. A couple things here before we get into today's message. Since it's Easter next week, we've been preparing a few things to help us get the word out to our friends and to those in the community. Uh, you may already have one of the yard signs in your yard. If not, please pick one up on your way out today. We'd love to see everybody here take a little step of public faith by putting one of those in, in your yard. We've also prepared these postcards that you can give out if there's somebody you've been meaning to invite. On the back of them, there's enough space that you can address them and drop them in the mail and send this to a friend. But it's just a simple invitation to join us on Easter. So we hope that these will all go out and that you can make use of those. And remember that next week as we're thinking about the guests that are coming here, we want to show hospitality to them. And since it will be more full in here than usual, we're asking our members to try to carpool and sit in, uh, park as far away from the building as you can uh, in our parking lot. Sit as close to the front as you can. And that means next week, all four rows right here in the front, we're going to fill up. Right, church? Right, church? Amen, church? Amen. We're going to fill those up. Okay, we're going to all uh, repent with mind, heart, and actions. And we're going to sit right there. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about repentance this morning. Uh, this is going to end our series, the third part of our little series here before Easter, and I'm excited about what we'll be doing next month, talking about God's greater love, the unbelievable story of our rescue. But building up to the point where we talk about God's rescue, there's an important question, which is, do we want to be rescued? Are, we, are our hearts in the position? Are our minds in the place where we're looking for and longing for God's deliverance? Do we want him to do anything in our life? And in the first week, we talked about John, the Baptist's preaching, that a real life of repentance is shown by the fruit that it bears. We want to bear fruit that matches our heart change. And what that means is we want to have, we want to have life change, transformation in our life that matches our heart change. In week two, we talked about how we need to allow Jesus to work. We don't want to uh, be the ones who leave him out of the equation by not turning to Jesus. And we don't want to try to fix ourselves. We want to allow Jesus to work when our hearts turn to God. And so as our hearts and our minds have been turning to God, we've been thinking a little bit uh, about how he might do this in our own lives. And today, I'm hoping that you will think about and hear how is God calling you to change some things and, and maybe what you'll hear is something that you need to repent of. But maybe what you'll hear is something that you need to do differently in the way that you live out your spiritual relationship with God, in your practices, so that you can hear God when he calls you to repent, or so that you're aware of God's prompting in your heart. Because our problem sometimes might be that we're not listening and we're not doing practices that help us to hear him. Sometimes we put blame in the wrong places. Sometimes we have trouble remembering who the enemy is. There's a story about an old lady and her neighbor. The old lady was a Christian, 
and the neighbor was an atheist, and I'm pretty sure this is a, a fake story, a made-up story, but it sure sounds like something that could happen. Every morning, this old lady would go out on her porch, and she would put her hands on the rails of her porch, and she would yell out for all the neighborhood to hear, Praise the Lord! And every morning, the atheist neighbor would come out onto his porch, and he would yell, There ain't no Lord! And so day after day, it went on like this until the older lady's life was getting a little hard and she was running out of funds and out of food and things. And so one day, she comes out on the porch and she says, praise the Lord, but God, things are getting really tough. I need some food and I need you to come through. And the next morning when the old lady goes out on her porch, she sees a huge sack of groceries sitting right at her front door. And she goes to the front of her porch and she yells, Praise the Lord! Well, that atheist jumps right out from behind the shrubs. Then he says, Ha! I got you! There ain't no Lord! He didn't give you those groceries. I did. The woman turns her eyes to heaven and she says, Praise the Lord! You sent me the food I needed and you got the devil to pay for it. Sometimes we have trouble remembering who the enemy really is. When we think about repentance, there we go, it was just turned off. When we think about repentance, we know now that repentance means a change of mind, really an, in, an internal change, a change of our heart that leads to a change of action. And part of the change is it means it's going to lead to a difference in the way that we see other people. And in the way that we listen to God about what he's trying to do in our own hearts and our own minds. And in the Gospel of Luke, where we had our reading this morning, in chapter 5, we're going to find a lot of people who need to repent. Almost everybody in the story except Jesus himself needs to repent. And, and people are confused about who the enemy really is. Who is the devil in their situation? And remember, the word devil originally is a word that just means... The Hebrew word is the accuser. The Hebrew word is Satan. That's where we get the name Satan from, the accuser. The Greek word is diabolos. It means the slanderer. And so there's a lot of slandering and accusing going on in this story. After these things, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Now, tax collectors weren't well-liked at this time. Tax collectors aren't well-liked in our time. So this is one thing that's been true throughout human history. Somebody comes to take a little bit of your hard-earned money, they're never very popular. Levi was sitting at his tax booth and Jesus said to him, follow me. You remember, Jesus doesn't ask us to merely accept him. He asks us to follow him. And Jesus said to Levi, the tax collector, unliked, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So now we've got the whole assembly of tax collectors together. This is like the IRS convention. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. And I want you to notice, who do the Pharisees, these religious leaders, who are mistaken about who the devil is? They're mistaken about who the enemy is. They think the enemy is the people 
who are living in sin. And they say their complaint to the disciples of Jesus. They're not bold enough to speak to Jesus directly and go to him and say to Jesus, now explain to us you know, what's going on here. Why are you hanging out with these guys? This doesn't seem the right way to do it. They go passive-aggressively to the disciples to undermine Jesus. And they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and look at the extra word they tack on, and sinners? I loved the reading that we had this morning. Uh, I don't know what version our brother was using, but it said, the scum. And although that's not the literal Greek word, that's exactly the idea that it's trying to convey. The arrogant attitude of the Pharisees is that these other people are the enemy. These other people are the ones who need to change. And Jesus answered them. You see, they asked the question to the disciples. But Jesus won't be so passive-aggressive. Jesus will be direct. And he'll speak to the people who think that the problem is everyone else, all the other sinners, directly about their accusation. And he says this, though, in a way that leaves a question open for us about their problem. He says, Is it not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice two things that Jesus does. First of all, Jesus doesn't make any judgment statement about the Pharisees who are making judgment statements about the tax collectors. Jesus instead responds in a way that simply states an eternal truth that people can choose which side of the line they want to place their allegiance. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, only those who know they're sick will go to the doctor, right? So implied, who do you think you are? And then Jesus says this, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, how big do you think you are? You see, Jesus draws out two things here. The one problem is that some people might be ignorant of their situation. They don't know they need the doctor, and so they've been called. Have you ever gotten the call from the doctor? Thank you for coming in and giving your blood sample. We need to speak to you further. Could you come in on Monday? You need the call. We need you to come to the doctor. Some people live in ignorance and don't know they need him. Some people live in pride and don't believe that they need anything to help them. And Jesus responds to both of those concerns in this one statement. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, church, I'm asking you in your heart to think about today, who are you? Which side of the line Do you put your allegiance on? Do you know that you need Jesus? Are you willing to admit it? Do you admit it only internally? Or do you admit it externally? Are you willing to actually do what the scriptures say from time to time and and believe James 5 when, when James wrote to the churches, confess your sins to each other 
He doesn't say, just inside your heart, regret your sins. He says, confess them to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Why would James ask us to do that? It, it makes us humble ourselves to confess our sins to someone else. We can't act like we're the one that has it all together when we're confessing to another human being. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to come to the front row at the end of Sunday morning and tell the whole church your darkest deeds. But it does mean that if there's not another person in your life discipling you, another Christian who's working through the Christian walk with you, iron sharpening iron, if you don't have anybody that you confess to, you are not going to experience God's full healing. This doesn't mean go to a priest for absolution. That's a perversion of the idea. This means have somebody that you confess your sins to, that you pray together so that you may be healed. Why? Because like Jesus shows here, we need some humility. We need some humility. Look at what happens whenever we repent passively. Passive repentance is whenever we can't really admit that we're sick. You see, we can't really admit it. And I want to show you two scriptures that deal with this problem in the human heart. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, read like this. And I want you thinking about again, who's the enemy? Who's the devil? Listen to this. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on others and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? What is Paul saying? He's saying that we have a tendency to look at others as being the enemy and do the same things the Pharisees did when they were at Jesus' tax collector banquet hosted by Levi, that we will look at others and say they are the problem, and yet we do the same kinds of things. So, Paul continues, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. And I want you to let those three words sink in for a minute. Would you look at those words? Let them rest on your heart. Look at God's character. He's kind. He is forbearing, which means that he doesn't punish you at the moment that you do something wrong, but he waits patiently. He's trying to develop you. He's giving you oppor opportunity and look at his patience. Do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So to the person whose pride is keeping them from admitting that they need the doctor, Paul writes, don't you realize God's kindness? His kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And church, do not mistake God's forbearance with approval. Let me say it again. Don't assume that because you haven't admitted your wrongs and life goes on well, that God is just okay with the things that you're choosing to hide and keep buried inside. Do not mistake God's forbearance with approval. He's patient, not condoning. It says because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, God must be just, and we've talked about this before. If God doesn't act justly 
and punish sin, if there is no wrath at the end of time, then all of the atrocities that have been committed by people against other people simply go undealt with, and that is called injustice, and it is not okay. And Paul is pleading with the people here at the church in Rome not to be the ones who look at everybody else as the problem or the devil, but to look inside while God is being kind and patient and to realize that it's time to change. Let your pride be broken down. Look at how Isaiah gives us a clue how we can do it. How can our pride start to crumble so that we can rest in God? Isaiah said, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Why don't you all read this with me once out loud? Ready? Let's read it together. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. You see, this verse talks about breaking down pride by resting in God. This isn't the same kind of passivity that the the leaders of the Israelite religion were showing when they were passive-aggressive. This isn't a passive kind of repentance, but it's rest. This is quietness in the Lord that breaks pride in passivity by trusting Him, by trusting Him for our strength. The other kind of problem that passive repentance brings about is that sometimes we can't detect that we are sick. Sometimes we're so prideful we won't admit it, but sometimes in our ignorance we don't know it. Sometimes we don't know where God has been calling us to go. Sometimes we don't know what he's been teaching us to do. And the letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote to his son in the faith his protege, Timothy, the young man that he was discipling in the Lord. They were iron sharpening iron together. You've got to think that Timothy and Paul were confessing things to each other and praying for each other for their mutual healing because they had a spiritual discipleship relationship. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 4. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. So what do you need to do, Timothy? And what does the church in Ephesus need to do? They need to pray. Why? Because in repentance and rest will be your salvation. In quietness and trust will be your strength. We need people who are pouring out to God in prayer and giving him petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for everyone, right? For the neighbor next door, as well as for the family in our house and the church that we gather with. Look at verse 2. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. How do we achieve the quietness, the rest, the repentance, the trust that Isaiah talked about? Well, according to Paul, writing to Timothy, prayer plays a huge part. He says, this is good. It pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You remember, some people don't know what God's calling them to do because of ignorance, because they simply don't know how to detect the Spirit working on the inside and the proddings of the Holy Spirit and God's nudges when He's telling us to do something, to, to, to move in some way. 
And how does Timothy say we can address all this? Well, we can get quiet and have peaceful lives through prayer, praying for everyone, and this will lead us to a knowledge of the truth. We find this mystery in Scripture that when we become a praying people, we become an aware people. He also writes again to Timothy in his next letter, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. These words remind me a lot of Galatians 5 when we read about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You guys understand that most of those things are matters of the heart. Most of those things, love and joy and peace, and this list right here, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, most of these are matters of the heart. These aren't things that can simply be learned by book knowledge. They're not things that can be simply gained by doing actions or deeds of mercy or works of good service. They are inside issues, things that God has to transform in here. And so he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. And I want again in your mind, who is the enemy? Who is the devil? Who is the slanderer? Who's the satan? Who's the accuser? Because like the Pharisees, we can so, in our ignorance, we can get caught up in accusing the wrong people. And Paul calls these arguments foolish and stupid. That's a word I wasn't even allowed to use in my house growing up. My brothers and I didn't know any better, so we called it the S word. And one time we were driving to church and my one brother told on the other and said, he said the S word. And my mom was like, oh no. So tell me what word he said, you know, and no, 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 I can't say it. I can't pollute my mouth that way, right? Yeah, self-righteous. Okay, tell me what he said. If you're going to tattle on him, tell the whole thing. He goes, he said stupid. <laughs> I was sitting over there laughing, you know, because I was in junior high. My mom was like, hey, <laughs> don't teach those ignorant sons anything they don't need to know. In our ignorance, we get into these foolish and stupid arguments, and they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. God's trying to produce people that don't get caught up in stupid, stupid, foolish arguments all the time because of their ignorance. So Paul says to Timothy, the opponents, the people that you think are the devil, the slanderers, the Satan, whatever, they must be gently instructed in the hope that God will, look at the word, grant them repentance. Repentance comes from God and his kindness, not from our willpower, right? Like we talked about last week. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. How does God promote awareness instead of ignorance in his church? How does he deal with the problem that some of us don't know what we ought to repent of? He does it through gentle instruction. He does it through prayer. He does it through the pursuit of the fruits of the Spirit, through the heart matters of the church. And he says, they, these people that are repenting now, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Remember, we've been talking about him the whole time, who has taken them captive to do his will. And church, I want us to realize today, pride can be an easy trap for the devil, and so can ignorance. When you argue foolishly with people, your ignorance and theirs become the very jaws of the devil's trap. He doesn't have to get you to fall into some great sin. He just has to get you to quarrel amongst yourselves in your ignorance. 
And so think about what we've been learning today about passive repentance and what God's asking us to do as we actively repent through prayer and through listening to God in rest, in quietness, in strength that comes from trust. Passive repentance is something that often happens because I was caught. I was found out, so I apologize. I was arrested, so I reform. Passive repentance can happen on the outside without happening on the inside. Active repentance means I was convicted, and I don't mean by the judge in the court, but this is a conviction of the heart, that there was some inner heart conviction. Look at the next one. Passive repentance would say, I desire to restore my privileges in the community. I want my driver's license back. I want my job back. I want to be allowed back into the bedroom to sleep with my wife again. Active repentance says, I desire to restore my trustworthiness within the community. I want my wife to look on me with love and trust again. I want my employer to know in me they have a man that God would trust. I want the community to give me the license back because I'm safe on the streets around their children now. Passive repentance might look like this, external, and might hopefully in the best of circumstances become internal. But you remember what Jesus said, why do you wash the outside of the cup and call it clean? Wash the inside of the cup and the whole thing would be clean for you. And so active repentance is integrated, it's holistic, it starts on the inside in the matters of the heart where we through prayer allow God to break down the pride and trust in him in quietness instead, where we allow him to gently instruct us through the spirit and the word instead of believing that we know all the truth and everyone else just needs to learn it and that they're the enemy. Look at this psalm as an example for today. We'll leave you with this today. My hope, church, is that this won't just merely be the last two slides you see before you go to lunch, but that these two slides from Psalm 19 would be a model prayer for you that you can put into practice to do the things we're talking about this morning. Let's look at these verses together. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 14. But who can discern their own errors? David wrote. Who can discern their own errors? And you should know that in this psalm, David has spent time meditating on on two things already. The majesty of God's creation and all the wisdom of the creator that it took to make it. He says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. There's this beautiful bit of poetry where David writes this. The, the creation, the skies and the stars, they have no speech, they use no words, and no sound is heard from them, right? Because stars don't have mouths and lungs, trees don't have that. And then he says, yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, he's saying that when we witness the majesty of God's creation, we realize there's a creator with more knowledge than I have. And then he meditates on God's scriptures, on the Torah, on the Old Testament scriptures, the law, and he calls them beautiful. He says they're more precious than gold, more precious than honey, more delicious than honey, right? And then he asks this question, but who can discern their own errors? Who has the wisdom of God to break down ignorance? And then he says to God, forgive my hidden 
faults. God, in repentance and rest, is my salvation. In quietness and trust in you will be my strength. That's the prayer for ignorance. Look at the second one, the prayer for pride. David writes, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Do you remember what God said to Cain in his pride? When Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted and he was so mad about it, he could just kill. And God comes to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. God wants us in the moment when we have these arguments and quarrels with others to to check ourselves through prayer and allow the Spirit to guide us and remind us, where is my pride getting in the way? And to break it down, and you could use this prayer, keep your servant, God, also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May the things that I say and confess and the things that I feel and believe match. May my repentance bear fruit in keeping with it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And these two verses of prayer could be your weapons against the real devil, against the quarrels that trap us in his traps and snares, against the pride that prevents us from going to the doctor and makes us point fingers at everybody else and say the tax collectors, they've always been the problem. And God wants us to simply get quiet with him. And we refuse because in quietness, we find him moving us and provoking us and calling us gently through his kindness to repentance. Search. We plead with each other, pray to God in quietness. Listen to him for strength. Rest on his strength and not your own. And we invite anyone here whose heart is moved to pray with us today, to pray with our elders at the front right now or at the back of this auditorium to pray with the ministers, to pray with the person sitting next to you in the pew. Prepare your hearts and minds for the message of Easter, for the resurrection of God, for the great deliverance, the unbelievable story of our rescue. But church, let's go to him in quietness and in trust. Let's stand and sing the song.